Welcome to episode 20 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a podcast by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Today, we are featuring an episode from RebelCast, hosted by Dr. Salim Rizai. This episode features speakers Drs. David Farsi, Evie Marcolini, and Cameron Kyle Sedell, and is a follow-up to the previous episode on not intubating early. So welcome back to RebelCast. I'm your host, Salim Rezai. And due to popular demand, we had recorded an episode back in April 2020, RebelCast episode 79, where I sat down with some intensivists who I will have introduced themselves here again momentarily. And we discussed COVID-19, but specifically we were focusing on intubation, when to intubate these patients, using an ARDSnet protocol, what's the best ventilator paradigm to think about. And so that was nine months ago. It feels like three years ago, but that was actually nine months ago. And I've had several requests to have them back and kind of talk about if anything has changed, if there's more nuance, if there's any amendments to their statements. And so with that, I'm going to have them kind of introduce themselves one at a time as a reminder. So David, we'll start with you. Evie, will go with you next. And then Cam, we'll have you go third. So do you just mind telling the listeners who you are, where you work, and what you do? Um, hi, my name is Dr. David Farsi. I'm the chairman of emergency medicine, director of critical care at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, Florida. Um, and the immediate, actually, past president of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Wow, nine months really did pass by. And uh, that's it. Hi, I'm Evie Marcolini, and I am a neurointensivist and emergency physician at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center up in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, and I'm uh, Cameron Kyle Seidel. I'm uh, board certified in uh, ER and intensive care, and I work at Maimonides Medical Center. I initially... Uh, during uh, sort of the peak of COVID, had been working in an all-COVID unit and sort of flipped over the ER and helped run our um, ER team when our ER sort of turned into a de facto ICU. So one of the messages we kind of got out back in April was maybe we shouldn't be innovating these people early. And we talked a lot about non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula as like an intermediary step. And I think that message got out. And I just want to tell you guys a little fact that you may or may not have known. So, you know, convalescent plasma has been something that's been really controversial and being studied. But there was a huge study, observational study, called the U.S. Expanded Access Program based out of the Mayo Clinic. It was 1,800 hospitals across the U.S. with over 47,000 patients. And what I'm not going to focus on is the convalescent plasma. One thing that they had in their paper was trends from early April until the end of July. And listen to these numbers. At the beginning of April, we were intubating 50% of patients who had COVID-19. By the end of July, we were intubating 16%. So a drop from 50 to 16. So that message got out. And so the reason I have you guys back is I want to get your thoughts on high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive ventilation. Has anything changed since we last recorded? We talked about aerosolization, the utility, avoiding innovation, preference of one over the other. I just want to kind of get your thoughts and pick your brains. So I'll start since I introduced first. Um, This is Dr. Farsi. So looking back at it, I'm in Miami Beach, Florida. We've been at this now for nine, nine, ten months. We had three surges, and I can tell you of one certainty, and I don't like certainties in life, 
but I stand behind what we said. Avoiding intubation on patient that is alert oriented to play salmon person just based on the number, increased mortality. High flow oxygen has been proven to be safe. And still today, I think you're saying the message got out, but I think there's a lot of places, a lot of country that are still intubating. We're seeing trend in intubation rise in Brazil and Europe. And I think it's crucial that we're repeating. I stand by a hundred percent what I said back in April of, of 2020. You know, David, I, I agree with you. And I think one of the things that's changed is that people are more comfortable with letting people, you know, not not intubating early. I think we didn't we didn't really know what was going on nine months ago as as much as we do now. Now we've got a little bit more data to work with and we see the progression of patients. And I think I think the progression of patients is something that we'll talk about in a while. I've got some thoughts about that, but people are more comfortable using non-invasive ventilation and um, we're getting back to using BiPAP, using um, high flow nasal cannula, and we're comfortable with how to deal with aerosolization issues. Um, so I, I, um, I agree with you. And I would say that, uh, and I want to sort of remind people where we came from, that when we were talking nine months ago, uh, we were sort of talking in a atmosphere where people were doing early intubation and hospitals all around the country were drawing up protocols uh, that called for intubation earlier than you would in a normal patient. And uh, whatever the protocols were, whether it was beyond six liters of nasal cannula or so forth, I absolutely think, and we can sort of talk about the physiology of COVID later, that that, that is, um, you know, that is definitely, in my opinion, a mistake and in some sense uh, may have caused uh, some harm early. What I have a little bit more nuance about is we did sort of flip from an early intubation strategy um, to what some might call a delayed intubation strategy, uh, which is that we were intubating people possibly later than we normally were. And in my sense, what some of the nuances at that time, uh, at least in New York where I worked, we had a tremendous amount of people on ventilators. We did not have ICU beds, so if someone was intubated, there was a, a, a high likelihood that they were either going to spend a, a good portion of the time in the ER or if they were intubated on the floor, that they were going to be on the floor for an extended amount of time before they got an IC, to an ICU. And, and so in that sense, I think at that time, we were unable to adequately protect as well as we should, as we would in normal times against ventilator-induced uh, lung injury. So what is a little bit more nuanced, which we may talk about later, is this concept of patient-induced uh, lung injury, which I know is controversial and to me is a super important thing. And uh, whether that exists or to what extent it exists and how we can uh, know what is going on, I think is of utmost importance. So you have these two competing things of uh, patient-induced lung injury and ventilator-induced lung injury. And I think that now with the numbers lower, we are able to protect against ventilator-induced lung injury better. And so that's where some of the nuance exists. Of course, uh, that, that you have to consider to what extent uh, the patient might be having some self-induced lung injury. But that would be uh, my reason to um, perhaps intubate earlier now, not an early intubation strategy, but earlier uh, than we may have before, because we have 
better staff and, and capabilities and stuff and systems in place uh, to protect the patients uh, when they're intubated. So I'd say that that is the nuance uh, when I look at patients now as I'm trying to uh, determine you know, what uh, those competing um, uh, processes or what's happening with those competing processes and what the risk-benefit uh, ratio is. So I, I, I want to chime in on this. Um, I do agree with some of what Cameron said, but I also do disagree. Um, I think, yes, the early protocol that says intubate them with eight liters because they're going to crash and we're going we're gonna to infect ourselves. But I also think that we're looking at a number that we never felt comfortable. And eight, pulse ox of 84% on 100% of oxygen two years ago would have made her head split, right? Head turn. Um, and we would rush to intubate. But when you look at those patients and they're awake, they're talking to you, they're alert, they're able to prone. You know, we've done now, we have a, a pilot retrospective, very small 20, 20 patients that were it's in, uh, we submitted almost four months ago. We're now collecting 400 patient perspective. And I can tell you that those patients, if they, we're not looking at the saturation, we're looking at the mental status and we're keeping them on a high flow. We're not ventilating because even with the highest skilled person of, vent of ventilating, we're having really poor results. And it's not only this, in Florida, you know, we're, we're in big academic centers, but what about the community hospital? You know, they don't have the support and they're trying to intubate people. And I think the message is, you know, we shouldn't be looking at a number. We need to look at the window, which I think is the mental status. Are they alert oriented? Are they able to follow commands? And they, are there any, any distress? I I think that's a great point because I think before COVID, a lot of us were looking at things like tachypnea, tachycardia, pulse oximetry to kind of make these decisions. And COVID taught us that there's going to be people walking around that are going to be just tachypnic and tachycardic and might have a low pulse ox. And our concern early on was they were going to tire out. But as many of us saw, they just kept going. They just weren't tiring out. And so we've added things, right, since we last recorded. So we're looking at mental status. We're looking at diaphoresis. We're looking at work of breathing, which is different than tachypnea. And I think a lot of us are starting to use those factors to kind of make that decision to pull the trigger. Um, I, I would say that's probably something that's a little more nuanced as we were all kind of scrambling around trying to figure this out. You guys have thoughts on that? Yeah, no, and I think... Um you know, I absolutely I agree with you guys. And, um, you know, I think what is hard is that in my experience with many of these patients on high flow, many of them won't tire out. That's not to say that they're not um, getting worse and, and their lungs eventually are developing uh, fibrosis and potentially um, irreversible injury. Uh, but I do find that many of these patients will not end up, even if you take them very far, uh, they won't end up tiring out. And so then the question is, why do we intubate, uh, presuming the mental status is good and so forth, um, if they're not going to tire out? And that's where, to me, this question of uh, patient self-induced lung injury is so important. And I don't know. I mean, there are top pulmonologists that are arguing about whether we should or should not act on this. So I certainly have no idea to what extent 
it exists. But that is the one thing in my mind, which to me is, is truly a, a, probably the highest priority to figure out when we're dealing with these patients. Because if you told me, for example, there is no such thing as patient self-induced lung injury, uh, I would probably take patients very, very far without intubating. Um, and, and so it remains just a huge question. And I, I hope that uh, some of the experts will help us out and, and um, help, help solve this. Yeah. I, I mean, Cam, that's like work of breathing, right? That's what you're talking about. You're not talking about somebody who's breathing fast. You're talking about if their work of breathing is high and they're pulling these huge negative pressures that they're just going to start causing injury to the lungs. And you're right. There is a lot of debate about whether that entity actually exists or not. Yeah. So really it swings in intrapleural pressure. And so at least the concept behind it is that you can have the same swings in intrapleural pressure uh, with a ventilator as with uh, a patient's vigorous breathing. And so that uh, while a patient uh, may be breathing fine and saying they feel fine, um, that these uh, heavy swings in intrapleural pressure can cause the same sort of transition and take a lung that is uh, light uh, um, and not fluid filled to sort of a heavier uh, and more uh, injured lung. And so the concept is if you are able to put someone on a ventilator uh, to decrease these swings that you may actually be protecting someone with a ventilator. And that's what I think is so hard with COVID. If this doesn't exist, um, then we don't often see or get the normal triggers uh, of someone who we feel is going to tire out. And so then there still remains this question of, of when to you, uh, intubate a patient uh, if this entity doesn't exist. And what's so hard, I think, is that there is tremendous controversy about this very important entity. Yeah, and I also think something that we're not mentioning, you know, we did, there's been a lot of changes on the approach on how we, you know, and in therapies, right? So I do believe the reports that microfrombi is going to be some of the causing of those, what you call patient um, lung injuries. I think this is UCLA was is doing uh, autopsies uh, on patients with COVID-19 so they can study more and more. I believe it's UCLA. Um, but so long, well, starting, I think it was May or June, we started giving aspirin on every single patient, epronizing patients there in the hospital. Um, I think steroid, the use of steroid, when patients are hypoxic, have shown to decrease mortality. I think there's also a combination of new, you know, new therapy, not, there's a lot of therapies that are failed. You know, we've tried severe, no benefit. We've tried conveyosin plasma, no benefit. Um, but when I look at our retrospective data, the length of stay of our non-intubated, high-flow oxygen patient who were all in severe ARDS, 11 days total, you know, with a 90% success rate. Yes, very small sample, very, very small sample. But as we're looking, we're going to look at our prospective trial with 400 patients. And due to COVID, we're not going to be able to get to the 400 patients because we don't have the staff. Uh, we're told 150, we'll try to put 150. But I think we're going to see that no, it's working, but yes, we have to give, you know, we have to give aspirin. We have to you know, worry. And I, at one point, if the patients start deteriorating and they're not making that, that comeback, slow comeback, then we're going to, you know, we're going to have to figure something else. So one, what, one of the things, and, and David, you bring this up, it makes me think that we, 
were so heavily focused on the intubation and isolation. And now I think we've recognized that we need to look at the whole picture and the whole patient. And, and, and we've seen a little bit more of what COVID does. And I have been talking with my uh, critical care MICU intensivist here about this. And, and they're starting to think about this pathophysiologically in a similar fashion to acute fibronizing organizing pneumonia, which used to be called boop. And, and looking at it is it's a disease that makes a slow, a slow progression. It responds to steroids and it, it, but a patient can um, explode and, and get really sick too. And the thinking behind it is just, you've got to watch the patient and listen to what they're telling you to do with respect to do they need intubation or are they are they having a an increased work of breathing and is that is that a bad thing and you know i've got to add some some neuro flavor to this um there's a really nice paper by fatui at all and, and salim i can send you this where he talks about stages of neuro covid and in the first stage, the virus binds to the cells in the nasal passage, but there's no cytokine storm. There's no entry in the brain. It's kind of contained. And in the second stage, now you've got a cytokine storm that causes inflammation and you've got hypercoagulability. You've got blood clots forming. You've got more neurologic symptoms. And the third stage is when that cytokine storm just explodes and you've got this huge inflammatory response. I kind of like this model of thinking about COVID. And if we take that overlay and apply it to our patients, now we're just, we're not just looking at a number. I'm going to intubate the patient when they get beyond a certain number. Um, but I'm looking and asking myself, where are they in the pathophysiology of the disease that we've been watching for nine months? And do they need intubation? So, no, I think that, you know, that's uh, so important. And I think what it is hard, and I'll just say that, you know, with this idea of patient-induced lung injury versus ventilator-induced lung injury, I absolutely, since we haven't sort of proven that this uh, patient-induced lung injury exists, I definitely lean towards pushing them as far as I could go and avoiding intubation um, if possible. But I, I do think that um, the hard thing when we talk about work of breathing it is inherently tied to compliance. And so sometimes, you know, I think initially what was going on is we saw people who we sensed that they had a high work of breathing, um, and yet they weren't tiring out. And it really wasn't as high as we thought because their compliance was more preserved uh, than we thought. And sometimes it's hard to tell that. So I think this is why I do think that pathophysiology is so important. And we'll probably talk about Gatinoni and the HNL uh, phenotypes, but uh, you know, I think that, um, just to talk quickly about Gatinonia, I think that a lot of pulmonologists really came down on him and, and focused on these, this uh, idea that you separate these phenotypes and you change respiratory therapy, and specifically uh, that he suggested that early proning may not be beneficial and that you could be have more liberal tidal volumes. But I think that we have to sort of take a step back and see what he's saying in the broader picture, which has to do with sort of the pathophysiology and the work of breathing. And I think sometimes it's better, rather than talking about compliance, which is something that just 
uh, we've been talking about constantly during this to talk about how much gas is in the lung. And I think that it is true when you look at the pathophysiology. Um, and I think most of us have seen a patient who comes very hypoxemic and you get a CT and there's more gas in the lung that you would expect. Um, you know, patients where normally you might be able to take half their lung or take one lung out and they wouldn't be as hypoxemic as they are. So, so something is going on. And I do think, you know, what we're having in my sense is this is primarily a uh, you know, a platelet-driven, endothelial-activated uh, vascular process, which is occurring initially. And so we have these patients initially with uh, very poor uh, PF ratios. Uh, however, they have much higher uh, amounts of gas in their lung than we would normally expect. And so that's when we look at a patient, we're used to seeing someone breathing that hard uh, because they have less gas. And they're trying to take big breaths and they're having to work harder than they normally would to get that tidal volume. And in this sense, I don't think that's the case. And so uh, that's why I think initially when we were intubating very early, we were intubating a lot more of these patients with large amounts of gas. And then we were putting them, we were trying to recruit them as we normally did in, in the diseases we saw before. And we were putting them on higher peeps, which was, you know, over distending alveoli with already uh, sort of an activated damaged vascular process. And, and we were causing injury. I, I think that's true. And I, I think uh, we didn't know it, but we can look back and, and sense that that's true. Um, but I do think as a patient progresses, whether, um, you know, they probably do progress to something we are more used to seeing. And so uh, I, I do think that in this process, the pathophysiology is extraordinarily important because although people say this is a very heterogeneous disease, you know, in the absence of if putting aside sort of the focal um, ischemic or hemorrhagic strokes or PEs or these other things, I find it to be a relatively uniform disease uh, of the pathophysiology that's going on. What is heterogeneous is the time frames and the severities in which they present. And I do think that depending on the time frame when they present and what is going on inside their lung, it probably does call for slightly different management. And we may not know exactly what that management is, um, but I do think we have to start uh, to sense what is going on in their lungs, what does it look like, how heavy or light or wet or not wet are their lungs, and how do we best uh, respond to that? Because um, certainly I think that if we intubate patients when they have you know high gas amounts and we're trying to uh, recruit them through high PEEP, that we are uh, certainly um, prone to causing them uh, some unnecessary injury. And I want to add to this, uh, Cameron, I do also believe, right, so we tried a high flow, patient is mentating, and at one point we're going to say, okay, he's tiring out or whatever, um, which we've, we're not seeing the tiring out, but let's say he gets intubated. And in our experience at our center and, you know, our data, I mean, our retrospective data is kind of showing this, and I, I hope our perspective will confirm it, but the patients that were on the high flow um, nasal oxygen with uh, proning, if they got intubated on day four, day five, uh, because they failed, you know, they got already, this, they got steroids, they got getting aspirin. And we did not see the cytokine storm that we saw on patient that we jumped to intubation. And that's something also that we're gonna, I think, discover, that I think those patients 
were not suddenly taken from zero to a hundred, but they were progressive, you know, their oxygen, because they're on a high flow, they had higher oxygen. Maybe they got steroid on board because they're hypoxic. They're, that cytochrome storm that was associated with, I mean, multi-system failure, we didn't see that. So I want to kind of summarize a little bit because we've covered a lot of information. So I agree with Evie. I think time does matter. And I also agree with Cam when he says it's heterogeneous because we don't know exactly what those time frames are. But I think we can all agree that there's probably a viremic phase followed by a pulmonary phase, kind of followed by a hyperinflammatory phase. And I think it's really important to think about those as we choose what treatments we want to do for our patients. And I'm sure most of us are seeing these people between days five to 10, probably closer to days seven and eight when they come in, um, in that pulmonary phase. Um, the second thing um, is it sounds like everybody still is sticking to their guns about not intubating early. Cam is adding a layer of nuance saying, I'm worried about this entity of patient uh, self-induced lung injury. And so I worry about when I'm pushing these patients, but that's not yet proven. And then I think we all kind of agree early on, we thought this was mostly an alveolar disease, but I think the thinking has kind of changed now that most of us agree this is probably a vascular disease, uh, endothelial injury and platelet hyperactivation. And those are very important components. And putting people on these high tidal volumes and high peeps kind of over distends these alveoli and just causes more injury. And maybe one of the reasons why we saw this hyperinflammatory multi-organ failure type thing once people got intubated. Now, the question I have for you guys moving on is if you had to choose between non-invasive ventilation and high flow nasal cannula, that intermediary kind of area, do you have a preference and why? We've been using for eight months the high-velocity nasal insufflation because that's what we have. We have planning. Um, and we had, uh, I think, for our center, a very successful, um, very successful mortality is you know dropping months per month. With, you know, we're, and we're in thousands of hospital admissions and average age 65 and above. Um, and we don't have any other resources, even though that this week, for the first time, we're starting, we're having the helmet for BiPAP. And so we're going to do some BiPAP with helmet. Yeah, I absolutely would uh, lean towards um, high flow nasal cannula and uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, and I think it's important to understand, you know, so what you're not getting out of there is as much uh, positive end expiratory pressure, which you normally would get. And I think it's important to understand why are we using positive end expiratory pressure? Why in ARDS is it uh, something that is thought to be beneficial and why does it uh, improve oxygenation? And, and so really the goal of that uh, is to recruit uh, collapsed but non-consolidated alveoli. Um, and in that sense, if you think of a lung, usually uh, ARDS, the lung is you know quite heavy. And so you get this sort of regional collapse and you get collapsed, but not consolidated uh, areas of the lung. And when you look at a CT, you see the sort of collapsed atelectic uh, bases. And, and so I think from a physiology standpoint, many of these patients come to us without that quite same physiology, and they may not be as recruitable. And I think that you do risk um, also over distending them uh, with with uh, CPAP or BiPAP. But I think even the bigger reason um, is that in the absence of helmets, uh, uh, CPAP, that it's just a much 
harder thing for a patient to tolerate and a much harder thing for us to watch. So a patient on high flow nasal cannula is able to eat. Uh, it's generally comfortable. Um, and so I think just the mask is just harder to tolerate for, you know, a week or so on end. That being said, uh, if I had a patient on high flow nasal cannula and they were getting worse and I sensed for some reason, you know, ideally imagine if you could get a repeat CT and you could look at the lung now and you thought, okay, now we have some collapsed, uh, but hopefully non-consolidated alveoli. I don't think it's uh, uh, crazy or, or I think it makes sense to progress them possibly uh, from high flow nasal cannula uh, to uh, CPAP or um, non-invasive. If you're able, if you have the staff and are able to watch them and coach them appropriately. Um, you know, uh, I think that we're being, we're becoming more comfortable with using all of these tools. And we have to, when we talk about which, which one we're using, the high flow or the BiPAP, we, we have to talk about aerosolization. And we do know that... Um, the, the literature showing that anything above 40 liters still has aerosolization. Uh, so we've got to think about the primary airway operator, the people that are within four to six feet of the patient's uh, oropharynx. And um, even BiPAP at higher IPAP settings is more aerosolizing than a high flow nasal cannula at any setting. But it, it, it really, we've become more comfortable with using these. And it used to be that we couldn't transport the patient through the hospital or even going to a CT scanner on high flow or BiPAP. And now we've got specific protocols for the scenarios where we can put a level two surgical mask over a high flow device or a specific airway hood that allows the therapy not to be interrupted when we're transporting patients. But it, it really comes down to it's not a one size fits all. If the patient is hypoxic, then I'm thinking about high flow nasal cannula. If the patient is hypercarbic, I'm thinking about BiPAP. And, um, and again, listen to the patient and, and address what they are asking for. I think that's a key point. Treat the patient, not the number. But I also want to mention one thing, uh, Evie. It's, I think, nine months, right, going on to 10 months. Uh, here in Florida, we've been at it and at it. And I think we've also learned one thing. Our PPE is working. Or, you know, we wear N95, we wear a face mask, we wear, we wear a shield, we wear our gowns and a glove. And I'm proud to say as the chair that I had zero staff member over 3,000 patients admitted, over 10,000 patients seen in our department um, for COVID, and we have zero infection. So we also now feel more comfortable knowing that RPP is working. And I think this is something that people need to understand. We need to trust RPPE. So it sounds like most of you guys are, are trying to start with something softer on the patient, which is high flow nasal cannula as opposed to non-invasive. Now, this brings me to a, a kind of a tougher topic. Um, I don't want to get into the controversy of H-type versus L-type. Um, to me, there's not two different types. It's just progression of disease. Um, and you start kind of in a higher compliance, as Cameron said, like air-filled alveoli, um, and you eventually start 
kind of transitioning over to this kind of more traditional ARDS with a, a lower compliance um, and where recruitability and proning and those sorts of things are going to be helpful. And so I'm curious what you guys think about this. I just want to kind of put this out there and then kind of get your two cents. And this is where the physiology and the kind of as the patient transitions is going to become important. But other reasons I like to use high flow is um, I feel like if I'm able to maintain what the patient needs with high flow, I'm not as worried about them kind of transitioning over. But if high flow is not going to be adequate enough to kind of keep up with them. And now I'm starting to have to think about non-invasive. That's where I'm kind of starting to think that's the window where I'm starting to see that transition. I like to, I, I agree with you. Um, but uh, for, for what we're seeing, you know, we're doing awake proning, right? Awake uh, pronation and pronation. It's not like ARDS, this, the, 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 the the RDS that we used to. The pronation might increase oxygen saturation, but it does not cause recruitment. The patient, once they go back into certain position, they will start desatting again. Um, and that's why I think people are saying, you know, pronation doesn't work. But I, I think keeping the patient moving and oxygenating those segments are gonna, I mean, this is Farsi belief by end of one that it's oxygenating some of those segments and preventing those microfumbi or uh, ischemia to that segment. Yeah, you know, I agree that sort of when they seem to be, initially when we were doing it earlier, uh, I was uh, not using non-invasive. I was urging the ER not to use non-invasive, partly because uh, we just didn't have the eyes to watch the patients. We had no negative pressure rooms. Although I will say that I, I do think that most patients that are critically ill are likely non-infectious. I think that there's evidence that at day eight or nine, you have neutralizing antibodies. And um, I think there's a lot less infectious particles being spread uh, than we initially uh, thought. Um, but I, I do worry that if they are um, so-called sort of failing uh, um, high flow, and certainly if they are tiring out. Now I've had people fail because their oxygen requirements just go up, but they are still not tiring out. And I think if they are actually tiring out, then I worry that they have started uh, to progress uh, to the H type. And, um, you know, we tended to intubate them uh, at that point. I do think that it's important to remember that, that some people, I do believe, progress um, to a low compliance, but not necessarily recruitable disease. And I think that uh, we've had patients on high flow that just got sort of worse and worse. And on day 16, 17, um, they sort of fail and, and you put them on the vent and uh, they have a fairly low compliance, but they still were not short of breath and they didn't have a high work of breathing. And I think that not all, it's important to remember that not all low compliance is recruitable and, and that you probably have this very late stage of uh, severe fibrosis um, where you just still don't have this kind of uh, wet uh, lung uh, or this wet heavy lung with you know, non-consolidated, but collapsed alveoli, but you still have a very severe disease. And unfortunately, you know, I don't know if some of those patients could have been recruitable at some point, you could have avoided some oxygen. I don't know what you could have done. It may just be that this is the natural progression, you know, and those are the patients that if they're um, able and young enough, you know, and in the right center, maybe need to be put on ECMO and look at lung transplant. Uh, I don't know, but, but I do believe that, yeah, once they sort of seem to be uh, failing this 
uh, high flow uh, that they they are getting to to a tough spot and and to uh, talk about what David talked about with proning is one of the reasons I, I think this is because you know the normally when we prone patients in the ICU for non-COVID diseases you do see some sustained recruitment so their PF ratio goes from 90 to 180 to 120 when you flip them back and slowly gets better and I have noticed that even these progressed patients don't seem to have a, a major uh, sustainment and which just makes me believe that we are when we flip them not necessarily recruiting alveoli. Now, uh, we don't have any studies for that or anything, but it, it seems to make a uh, physiologic uh, sense. Uh, that being said, I think that even if you're not recruiting alveoli, uh, I think that there is some benefit to just improving the numbers because then for us, we have to do less aggressive intervention, whether it's we're turning the oxygen levels down because when they're on their stomach, they need less oxygen, which uh, potentially can cause less oxygen toxicity. If they're prone on a ventilator, then we use less pressures. So I think that although they may not have sustained improvement, I would certainly advocate proning anyone at any stage. Um, the later stages, perhaps you have some alveolar recruitment and in the earlier stages, then we have to do less iatrogenic harm. But Kim, I think with the proning, the awake proning, right? We're not talking about intubated proning. I think the other thing that I don't hear people talking about is we know that this virus, at least early on, seems to like the posterior lower segments of the lung. And so when you prone people, you're not just recruiting alveoli, but you're shifting blood flow. And you're using gravity to shift blood flow to the parts of the lung that are just aerated better and have better blood flow. And so I think that's part of the reason we're seeing that benefit. Again, like you said, not proven, but it's not just recruitability of alveoli. I think the proning early in disease is more shifting of blood flow, whereas later in disease, it's recruiting alveoli. No, I absolutely agree. And I think that, you know, what Gattinoni said, what people got upset about is he said that it may not be necessarily beneficial in that early stage because you're not recruiting alveoli, you're just shifting blood flow. Um, but I, I think that there is some benefit because like you said, if you're moving uh, blood into areas that are less damaged, which allows us to um, use less of whatever we have to use that may cause some, some harm, that there's some benefit to that. Um, you just have to be careful when you, you flip them back and be prepared for them to go back to where they were. You know, I know this is not the topic, but I have a lot of patients at home, COVID-19 patients who don't want to be hospitalized that we're using, you know, oxygen, not high flow. We're using oxygen uh, up to 10 liters. And a lot of them will tell me, you know, my, my, my O2 side is 89, but the moment I prone myself and they go up to 95 and it's not re sustainable, but it's depending on their position. It's also depending on the day. They'll tell you in the morning, my oxygenation is 95, 96 on four liters. And at night it gets to be 88 on four liters. Uh, it's really, there's no one, I don't think one model is we really have to look at a number and titrate it. I have a bunch of patients we've managed at home on oxygen and seven, 10 days and then they get better and they have no sequel. Yeah. I mean, the reason I think it's not sustainable though, David, isn't because we're not, it's not because of alveoli recruitment. I think it's not sustainable because once you lay back on your back, the blood just all shifts back to the sick part of the lung. I think. And that's, that's why I was trying to tell that's, that's, I was trying to illustrate your point to, uh, to uh, agreeing your point. It's not a recruitment where the alveoli is go back. I think it's just shifting of that perfusion, the, the blood flow. It sounds like looking back nine months, we said don't intubate early. Sounds like we all kind of still agree with that. It sounds like we kind of threw around high flow, non-invasive, at least early on as kind of this intermediary step. But it sounds like 
maybe high flow before we get to non-invasive. And then the question becomes is triggers to intubate. Have your triggers to intubate changed since we last talked? Because Cam, when when you were talking and I, I was on the kind of the same bandwagon is we were pushing these people so far. I mean, further than I've ever pushed people. And, you know, are you still doing that? So I, I think this is, it's still, it's still so very difficult. Um, and I will say that there's a couple of reasons why I think we were more comfortable pushing people and why we went further and some reasons why I thought that maybe we should pull back. When I initially, when we initially had, at some point we had, you know, 17, 18 high flow patients in the ER and, it, you know, it was very busy. Um, uh, our initial goal, which we set as a, this random target, was when they required a you know 100% FiO2 to achieve a SAT of 88 and 90 to 90 combined with uh, distress, which we said was anxiety and tachypnea, or if they had sustained levels below 80, uh, that that we would intubate then. Now I'll tell you what what happened uh, was that um, naturally, uh, while that was our target, people not just me, but many people started taking people further because they got more comfortable uh, watching this illness. And part of that, and this is very important, I think, for ER physicians, was that we had less people crashing. And I think uh, the reason that happened is because you have to flip some of your um, immediate uh, ER triggers. Uh, so for example, in our ER, we have one side, which is all critical patients. So they were all there, but we have these four beautiful resuscitation rooms. And usually when you know bad stuff is happening outside, the first thing we do is move them straight to the resuscitation room and everyone gathers around. So, so we're there. And initially that was happening. So we were watching these patients um, that had high flow on and we were really trying to make sure they kept it on, but inevitably one would knock it off and their saturations would go to 29. And the initial reaction that would happen is that they would take that patient immediately to the resuscitation room. Now, the problem with that is our high flows uh, did not have batteries. So in that transition time, uh, they could not be on a high flow, you know? And so we started to learn, you know, patient all of a sudden knocks it off, goes to 29, leave them there, put back the high flow back on. And now it's very hard to do because that's not your natural reaction. Uh, you know, let them come up again. Um, and then when they get to an adequate sat, we organize everything. We make sure the respiratory therapist is there and we can move them very quickly. Because what happened is we were moving them, you know, into the resuscitation room. And by the time we got there, uh, you know, their sats were two, three, four, and they potentially could be getting bradycardic. So I think as less people started crashing, people got um, very comfortable uh, with taking them very far. Now, uh, this is a lot of this is my belief, but but one of the problems I think is that, you know, when we talk about traditional ventilation, um, you know, the one thing that never we know keep their plateau pressures low, keep their driving pressures low, but we never really address this thing with respiratory rates. And I think there's more evidence that you're having a respiratory rate of 30 with traditional ventilation. Um, may be causing lung damage in itself. And, uh, you know, as these patients get very non-compliant lungs, they don't have a problem with air trapping. And we just, you know, to achieve our other goal of having adequate ventilation, we hike up their respiratory rate. And I tend to think um, that you cannot have someone breathing that fast on traditional ventilation and maintain uh, what I would call as a stable lung. And to me, this disease is all about achieving lung stability. And so I think sometimes when you're moving air quickly in and out, you're aerating areas of least resistance and collapsing others, and you just create this um, 
this sort of slowly uh, decreasing lung size and you really do create this kind of baby lung. And that has the consequence of having uh, um, uh, crosstalk with other organs. And so you probably have uh, some degree of, you know, the pulmonary endothelium is not doing its job. And so it causes problems. Now, in my opinion, one of the ways you can avoid this is to use APRV. Uh, however, you know, so if I worked in a place where I think uh, that uh, the MICU, the people who uh, had um, sort of accepted APRV, I might then be willing to intubate them a little bit earlier because I do believe that that allows for more lung stability. But in the absence of that, I think it's still very difficult because I still have this inner desire to, to take them uh, pretty far. And sorry, just uh, one of the reasons I think that is also, I think with these particular patients, I think that dyssynchrony is awful. It is very, very bad. And so um, with APRV, you know, you really can't have dyssynchrony. They can breathe terribly, but um, so I, I do tend to still push them pretty, pretty far, still worrying about the trigger, still trying to think what should be the right trigger, you know, whether patient self-induced lung injury exists and, and everything like that. But it's still, I think, very, very, very difficult. And in a way, the decision has not gotten much easier. We've kind of uh, stopped looking at numbers, really oxygen saturation, or nurses are stopped, or doctors are stopped. And I'll tell you a story, and this is going to be uh, for HIPAA, a non-fictional, but we're going to change some of the facts. But until I got a physician who called me and said, you know, I want to hear more about this. Can you please tell me what to do? And I said, why? And he said, you know, last time I intubated a 38-year-old patient, he asked me to FaceTime his wife and he thanked me. And then we intubated him and he died. And he said, you know, I've been in the pulmon uh, intensivist pulmonary for many years. He says, I've never had that happen to me. Um, again, you know, the numbers are numbers. And it's really about looking at the patient. And unfortunately, we know that this is, we can't be in the hospital 24-7, seven days a week. I'm, I'm mentally exhausted. I'm mentally drained. Um, and this is, I'm, I served in the military. I've been in war. You know, war, I consider this easier because you see the enemy. You know your enemy. This, we don't see the enemy. We don't know our enemy. Uh, and so, no, has not changed at all. Absolutely not. Yeah, I think I wouldn't have, uh, you know, changed a lot of what I said before, um, except there is this sort of uh, nuance um, where you're still trying to wonder if now I'm taking them too far. Whereas before, I thought that probably uh, there was no such thing as too far unless they died <laughs> without being intubated. Um, but now it's just this constant sort of racking of the brain, which in a way the decision is is harder because before I was just willing to take them. <laughs> I would take them, take them, take them. But now I just constantly worry that, uh, is there some way I could better protect their lung? Well, I just want to thank you guys for taking the time. Um, it's always interesting to see how practice changes and especially with this pandemic, how quickly practice changes. But it sounds like if anything, we're sticking to our guns. We've just added a lot more nuance, which you would expect, um, because it's not like any of us learned about COVID when we were in med school. It's not like it was in textbooks. This is all new. We're all kind of learning on the go. And so it's good to see that some of the decisions we made are we're sticking to our guns. So I really appreciate it. Reveille Emmers, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or thoughts, be sure to leave them for us. And until next time. 
We hope you have enjoyed this special podcast episode from RebelCast. For more information about RebelCast, visit www.rebelem.com. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, check out other podcasts produced by AEM and find all episodes of Critical Care and Emergency Medicine under the Resources tab and then Publications. Join us again next episode when Dr. David Farsi will discuss another issue of importance for critical care and emergency medicine.